Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, February 12, 2019, is the President Bill Clinton Lecture in American History. In this talk, acclaimed Lincoln historian Harold Holzer discusses our 16th president's legacy, both in the years immediately following his assassination and today. Good evening. I am so grateful that you braved the typical Lincoln's birthday weather to join us um, tonight. I think this may be the about the 40th Lincoln's birthday where I've made a, a speech or a lecture. It really varies. I, I made a misery for years of the birthday of my older daughter who's here tonight because she's February 11th. And uh, she had to do a lot of uh, trips to Springfield, Illinois on this day, for which I'm always apologetic and grateful. And... Um, I apologize as well that Lincoln was not born about May 10th, but that's that's the way it goes. Um, Anyway, happy Lincoln 210. This is the 210th birthday of Abraham Lincoln. Um, It's a real privilege to be talking about him tonight at this great institution, which I love, and a particular honor to be delivering the the annual Bill Clinton Lecture in American History because... um, President Clinton has been very generous and kind to me over the years. As I think I heard Louise saying, he gave me the life-changing opportunity to chair the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission uh, in 2000, gave us a great tour once of the Lincoln bedroom and the closet. It was then Chelsea's closet from which President Lincoln stood to give all of his speeches from the White House window. Uh, That was an extraordinary opportunity. Um, I'm sorry he couldn't be here tonight, but he's in Little Rock. I hope he got there, but uh, I didn't want to begin tonight without thanking him. So every president is concerned with his legacy. Some, like President Clinton, have the chance to work directly on building and burnishing it over the years in retirement. They build libraries, they embark on speaking tours, they write books, And if they're fortunate, like uh, President Carter, for one, they're blessed with time and energy to build entirely new post-presidential reputations. Bill Clinton has remained on the American scene as a vivid ex-president for 19 years, President Carter for a record-breaking 38 years. Abraham Lincoln, as we know, did not have such an opportunity. He was assassinated on April 15th, April 14th, died on April 15th, 1865, at the apex of his presidency at his moment of triumph, and was almost immediately transformed by a shocked public into a national martyr, a secular saint, if you will, celebrated that Easter Sunday in churches across America as another savior who had died for a nation's sins, and mourned at Passover services that same Sunday as a modern Moses who, like the first, had 
led enslaved people toward the promised land. Pulpits offer powerful stages for such transfigurations, and Lincoln was blessed from thousands of them in April 65. And he was revered as well from honored places above hearthstones in family parlors, a kind of secular domestic space where ordinary Americans bore witness to their political beliefs by adorning the space with images of their heroes. Lincoln's image was soon as much in evidence as George Washington's and as the religious icons of old had once held principal space. Well, such images have long vanished from American homes, I guess replaced in a series by posters of rock stars, by family photos, and by but now by widescreen TVs over the mantelpieces. But I don't have to provide an explanation of the enduring power of a different kind of image-making, public statuary, to stir emotions, because, as we know, statues still evoke very deep reactions. I just spoke about that unresolved phenomenon from, from this stage a couple of weeks ago. The battle for memory in the public square continues particularly across the South, in Charlottesville, at UNC, in New Orleans, and elsewhere. And let's admit it has touched New York, too, where Lee and Jackson busts sat at the NYU Hall of Fame until just a couple of years ago, where the Historical Society statues of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass stand in close proximity to a contested equestrian portrait of Theodore Roosevelt, across 77th Street at Natural History, and only a few miles from the statue of the father of modern gynecology, Dr. Marion Sims, removed just a couple of years ago when it was revealed he had made his great discoveries by experimenting on enslaved women with neither anesthesia nor consent. So fully aware as we are of the power of the public memorial, and reminded as we should be of the power, the intimate power of the printed and painted image, I want to use an assortment of these images tonight uh, to trace the complex and continuing evolution of the Lincoln legacy. The goal is to recall and understand how Lincoln has been remembered and perhaps as well how he should be. So this image um, might have been a way that Lincoln perpetually remembered Lincoln. It's a photograph by legend made just a few days before his assassination, and uh, which the photographer broke in his hands, the glass plate, resulting in this eerily cracked uh, photograph. Then it was found out that it was really taken not on April 9th, as has long been believed, but on my birthday, February 5th. So it wasn't even the last portrait of Lincoln, and it lost some of its power. This was the last photograph of Lincoln, and a sort of a squinting, disagreeable picture. It was taken on the balcony of the White House in a March wind. So this wouldn't do either. How would Americans remember Lincoln in those months and years after his assassination? Originally, it was by newsworthy depictions, I guess by the CNN of its time, Courier and Ives Prince, which imagined the way the Lincoln assassination had looked. Of course, Lincoln did not clutch a symbolic American flag at the moment of his assassination, but it was a good image 
for that reason. And Currier and Ives also provided a glimpse at the Lincoln deathbed, not like the royal demise of uh, great kings, just a small room in a boarding house across the street from a theater. By the way, his son, Tad, who's seen weeping there, was not at the scene, but it seemed like the appropriate thing to include him. But then again, there were some people who said this was hardly a way to remember and appreciate Abraham Lincoln with 11 people in a room. Why not remember him this way (laughs) with 86 people in the room? And this is John Littlefield's um, interpretation of the Lincoln death room with the room expanded to about 10 times the size. Well, another way was to remember that one great president had saved the Union and another had preserved the Union. And many people collected these images of Lincoln and Washington bestriding the continent, uh, as you see here. Then there was the idea of remembering Lincoln as a family man. And a devoted father he surely was. But in truth, he had had very little time to spend with his family once he assumed the presidency in the midst of a war. This image was taken a year before he died, but no one ever thought that it had any consequence or appeal until uh, his assassination about 15 months later, when suddenly this image became hugely popular and inspired artists to use it as the basis for Prince imagining a big, happy family, uh, nothing like the one that uh, they had endured or had become during the Civil War. This is Francis Carpenter's interpretation, which is in the collection of the New York Historical Society. Well, why not remember Lincoln by his greatest act, the act through which he said he would go down in history? Of course, the Emancipation Proclamation. Early tributes created this sort of bold calligraphic image of his face using the words of the proclamation until people recognized that they weren't terribly inspiring, but rather legalistic. Um, Another way to remember the proclamation was to imagine his first reading of it before the cabinet, but this kind of staid group of older white men uh, dealing with black rights also quickly became outdated. Well, you could become very fanciful and imagine Lincoln uh, rising into heaven himself with faith, hope, and charity uh, to welcome him. Why a Native American in the foreground? Some wondered. Well, actually, this was originally an apotheosis image of George Washington uh, made 65 years before Lincoln's death. They dusted off the plate, they took Washington's head out, and they put Lincoln's in. (laughs) That explains the Masonic symbol at Lincoln's feet there. Lincoln was not a Mason. As early as 1865, the idea developed that Washington, D.C. should become the site of a Lincoln memorial, as we know it did. And this was the first design. And, and it's pictured in the site uh, for which it was intended. It's done by Clark Mills, who did the statue, the sort of clumsy statue of, jo- of Andrew Jackson that still stands in Lafayette Park in Washington. Mills had also done a life mask of Lincoln right before his death, but he did not imagine a simple tribute. There were 36 other figures here in this general's um, um, equestrian portraits of generals, political figures, 
imagined figures, and at the very top, Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Needless to say, the plan did not go very far in Washington. In 1876, though, um, there was a successful attempt to build a monument to Lincoln in Washington. Uh, It is now considered totally politically incorrect and is one of those statues that is disputed um, in the new public debate over public memorials. Um, Ulysses S. Grant unveiled it. Frederick Douglass, speaking of that synergy, gave the dedicatory address um, in 1876. It's by Thomas Ball. And interestingly, it was funded exclusively by African-Americans. And there it still sits in Southeast Washington. In 1887, another great achievement, uh, which is still considered uh, a great work of art, Augustus St. Gordon's Lincoln the Man, also known as Standing Lincoln in Chicago, and a hard act to follow. It was unveiled by Abraham Lincoln's grandson. I mean, how much more appropriate could it be? Well, let me go back now in time a little bit, back to 1875, to the professional origins of a man who I think actually created the the great Lincoln image, the great iconic Lincoln image of his time and ours. And that is Daniel Chester French, dressed rather jauntily uh, on the left. And his first successful work, another iconic work, The Minuteman, which was unveiled in Concord, Massachusetts in 1875. At that time, he was in... um, Florence, studying under that extravagantly bearded fellow uh, in the rear, Thomas Ball, the man who had done the Lincoln statue for Washington. And no doubt French studied, or mostly he was studying um, Ball's daughter, on whom he developed an intense crush. Um, But he studied with Ball and no doubt saw the model um, that we now see realized in Washington, D.C. So he saw how a sculptor can deal with Abraham Lincoln and deal with this question of uh, emancipation. He saw it from all angles, and those who visit the actual angle, uh, the actual statue, can see that from some angles the emphasis is on the kneeling slave rather than the uplifted slave, which is part of the reason why it has fallen into disfavor. By 1900, my man French there is, uh, I mean, I'm happy that he lost his hair because I feel some vindication in the vicissitudes of age. He had great hair, which I didn't show you the picture. but um, He's in New York, half of his time spent in uh, the Berkshires. He is on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. St. Gaudens is dead, and he is the leading American sculptor, and he has become a master of Civil War commissions. This brooding General Grant for Philadelphia, which was unveiled by Mrs. Grant. This is just to give you an idea. This is General Hooker for Boston, an unsuccessful general and a hugely successful dedication ceremony. These were big deals in the day. Um, At a more intimate level, This is French working in his Greenwich Village studio, a tribute to three brothers from his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, who had died in the Civil War. 
called Morning Victory. And uh, this is the marble version that sits in the Englehart Court at the Met. So here he is, highly successful, and he gets a terrific uh, trial run. He's asked to do a Lincoln for the Nebraska State Capitol, which you all know what that's called, Lincoln. Um, One of the first cities outside Illinois named for Abraham Lincoln. And he, as always, does um, a good deal of work, research. He examines Frederick Hill Meserve's um, edition of Lincoln photographs. He gets Meserve to send him individual photographs. uh, And he produces his own standing Lincoln, a brooding uh, Lincoln face down, not really like St. Gaudens. Uh, a woman who was present when the model was unveiled in Lincoln, Nebraska, went up to French and said, you know, I saw Abraham Lincoln speak in Illinois. And Mr. French, you may not know this, but before every speech, he stood with his hands clasped in front of him and his head bowed. And then he raised his head and began. And when they unveiled this, she said, you saw him too? And French had not, of course. But this is, this is an intuitive um, interpretation. At this point, French is so famous and so well-established that two other American presidents enlist him to be part of the rebuilding and remodeling scheme in Washington, D.C., the development of the National Mall, the, um, the prevention of blight in Washington. Theodore Roosevelt conceives of a National Commission of Fine Arts. William Howard Taft organizes it and names Daniel Chester French to chair it. And there he is at the head of the table. Now, it's kind of an interlocking directory at this point of Washington, D.C. planners because Taft is now named head of the Lincoln Memorial Commission as he leaves the presidency to Woodrow Wilson. Um, They finally have figured out a way, and it took a Republican Congress and Republican President Taft to create the legislation needed to raise the enormous sum of like $200,000 to build a Lincoln Memorial at long last in Washington. This is 40 years after Lincoln's death. And it's coming on Lincoln's centennial time, so there was a great hunger to get this done at last in the nation's capital. So the next controversy, because there had to be controversy, is where to build it. No, that site that we know is, was not automatically chosen. And some of the ideas were pretty loopy. This is Union Station in its early days. And one of the earliest proposals was to build it next to Union Station. Only when people thought, well, we don't want commuters rushing by the statue, was that idea shelved. Then they went back to the U.S. Capitol as a site for the Lincoln Memorial. But a plan had already been developed to devote that space to Ulysses S. Grant, and you see that statue today. Here's another plan. The Soldier's Home, Lincoln's Summer Cottage outside Washington. Lincoln chose it because it was remote, so it didn't get the nod because it was remote. How about the Naval Observatory? I like that this is an aerial view of the Naval Observatory. I think that's very appropriate. Um, But here is the Naval Observatory on E Street, which Lincoln visited. But again... It didn't seem to be the right place for a Lincoln memorial. Meridian Hall Park. 
That's on Florida Avenue in Washington. Um, probably not the best place either, uh, sort of away from the central part of the city. And besides, they already had a seated, seated statue of James Buchanan. Well, the, the wisest idea seemed to be, if the mall was being developed, to do West Potomac Park. And here's what it looked like when it was above water, which was not all the time, uh, in, at the turn of the century when the idea was hatched to build there. Um, not everybody wanted to do what now seems obvious. This is the Nancy Pelosi of his day, uh, Uncle Joe Cannon, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, just as fierce as Speaker Pelosi. And he said, I'll never let a memorial to Abraham Lincoln be built on that goddamn swamp. He threatened, and he had the power to make it happen, that if his wishes were not respected, he would cite the Lincoln Memorial at Robert E. Lee's mansion on the Virginia side of the Confederacy, which seemed a bit perverse. The only reason why West Potomac Park was ultimately chosen is that this man, this bearded statesman, John Hay, who was the Secretary of State, but who had previously been Abraham Lincoln's deputy private secretary, testified powerfully before Congress and convinced a reluctant House and Senate to cite the memorial on, in West Potomac Park, facing the Washington Monument. It seems so natural. And then it came to design. These big public projects usually inspired major competitions. There really was no competition, and I tried in my research on Daniel Chester French to try to determine why there was never a formal commission. The answer is elusive still. It's not in the official files. But Henry Bacon, the architect, was chosen. Uh, the only alternative proposal was by John Russell Pope, who later did the National Gallery of Art, who proposed a pyramid or a Mayan temple. So wiser heads prevailed there too. And Bacon, who had been a collaborator of French's on many projects, a young collaborator, proposed the iconic Greek temple, the Doric temple that we know so well today. And work began by 1911. These are construction shots from the National Archives, which I just love. It reminds one that... Um, the undercroft, as they call it, of the Lincoln Memorial is much deeper than the above-ground part. And um, some of you uh, may know that David Rubenstein, who appears here often, um, is funding the redevelopment of this basement, which is really swampy and musty. But he's turning it into a visitor center, which is going to be a great, great boon. So here we go with the construction, little by little taking shape amazingly quickly. It wasn't easy because it was sinking into the ground as it was being built. And there it is. You see that undercroft is, is really deep. Um, and now, of course, the steps lead you to the top. Well, what about the statue? That's the main attraction. Um, one early idea was to put St. Gordon's statue there. And uh, Henry Bacon who I'm sure knew that his senior partner, Daniel Chester French, wanted to do this great commission, said he would not 
allow a replica to be built in his memorial. Um, nor did they want a standing Lincoln necessarily. This is an earlier work that Daniel Chester French did. It's a, you know, it's not a portrait, but it's a seated memorial to Marshall Field, the merchant from Chicago. And French really early adapted the idea of a seated and throned Abraham Lincoln. This is Henry Bacon's original drawing of the idea that French had communicated to him. Now, there's one big problem. French was not only on the National Commission for the Fine Arts, he was the chairman of it. And the final design would have to be approved by the National Commission of Fine Arts. Um, French did not resign immediately. He took his sweet time getting off the commission because it had all been presupposed that the Bacon-French partnership would prevail. He finally resigned to President Wilson and set to work. And I'm just going to show you a little bit of his creative process because it's so extraordinary. He started with the life mask of Lincoln. Those are not symbolic nails in the head. Those are measuring nails that a sculptor uses. The life cast of Lincoln's hands, his own hands, which he cast in sort of the positions he thought he would want them. He was a great stickler for the way he portrayed hands. And um, his first cast was made in about 1912. There's no doubt who the senior partner was because he wrote to Bacon and said, it should interest you to know I am making models. When I have anything worthwhile, I shall expect you to come up and see what I have to offer. So it was French's project from here on in. And here's an enlargement he did. It's beginning to look exactly like the figure that has become so familiar. Successive enlargements, this gives you an idea of what his last model looked like because there is Dan standing in front of it and there in the recesses of Lincoln's coat is the um, original model that he had started with. He did no drawings. It's a, just a remarkable creative process. He just sat there with a block of clay and began. And he sketched in three dimensions, which is just, an, for me, just an unimaginable talent and gift. He had to sell really only one person on his design, Robert Lincoln, the son, the surviving son of Abraham Lincoln, seen here in his 70s. He lived uh, until 1926, so he was around. And they, went and they had this give and take, very much like his give and take with Bacon. You come to me, no, bring it down to me. How about taking it to Chicago? No, take it to Washington. No, come to Greenwich Village. Anyway, Robert never saw the full model. They just would not cede, one would not cede uh, preeminence to the other and who was the determinative voice. But French did go down to Washington to look at the atrium of this behemoth of a temple. And he quickly decided that he had miscalculated. He had planned a 12-foot high statue on a base. And he looked at that atrium and he said, this is going to be a terrible failure. And he, it had to be bigger. And he had a great eye, needless to say. He immediately thought 19 or 20 feet would do it. But how to get Congress to reappropriate or appropriate an additional fifty or $60,000, um, either in bronze or marble, believe it or not, he had not decided yet. Well, here's how he did it. He made a cast of Lincoln's head 
that was proportional to a 19-foot-high statue. He took it to Washington. He suspended it from ropes in exactly the position it would hold in the Lincoln Memorial interior. And then he got Robert Lincoln to come down and say, this is perfect. You couldn't do anything smaller. Um, This persuasive work is now in the New York Historical Society. Um, I'm going to advocate for a a label that fully discloses its history as the model that changed the size of the Lincoln Memorial. So what next? Daniel Chester French is a great conceiver. He's a great modeler. He is not Michelangelo. He does not take uh, tools and begin chipping away at marble, or in this case, 28 blocks of marble uh, from Tennessee, 21 of them to be carved and seven to make up the interior, and 19 of them defective, so they had to work around some problems. Um, that was a work that was work that was handled by immigrants. Um, it's a nice story. These are the Picciarelli brothers from Italy, um, five of them, who worked in such tandem that when one was finished with a chisel and ready to take a break, he would hand it over to his brother and his brother would just continue seamlessly. Um, By the way, the Lincoln Memorial was also made in the Bronx at a huge factory of marble cutting that uh, the pitcher really operated not far from where Yankee Stadium is today. And a magazine uh, sketch artist got to see Uh, the New York Historical Society head in situ there and made some wonderful drawings of the work that the Picciarillis were doing, the blocks of marble and their famous lunch breaks in which one brother would make macaroni for the group. Uh, French managed to get up there a lot for lunch. It was a lot of fun. And he did a lot of work. He worked on the head. He worked on the hands. But again, This was a joint effort. His modelers in Stockbridge in New York helped with the casting, and the Picciarelli brothers, who were going to be honored in that new Undercroft Museum, created the marbles. By this point, the steps had begun to be built. Here are Daniel Chester French and Henry Bacon at the pediment, at the top, not at the pediment, on the top step. And... They bring the 28 blocks of marble down by rail express and they just begin to assemble them on site, really with no concealment from the public. And here are Bacon and French again. Bacon is now in his, uh, French is now in his 70s, but he scampers up those two ladders to get to the top and polishes off the pieces that, the parts of the statue that he wants to be perfect. So there it is. Two and a half years would pass before the dedication. And I do want to spend a time talking about the dedication from which the Lincoln Memorial and Lincoln, the Lincoln image and the Lincoln legacy actually had to recover. Because on Memorial Day 1922, the city's African-American community got there early. They got to the front rows. And a few hours before the ceremony was to get underway, mounted police cleared them out of their seats and moved them back to segregated seating in the back of the crowd. This is at a Lincoln event. Um, 
The other seats had backs. Their seats were benches. Um, they were replaced in their seats by aged Confederate veterans in uniform, to add irony. Some people refused uh, to stay, understandably, including one really interesting man named Alan Leroy Locke, who was the first African-American Rhodes Scholar. He walked out in protest with when this happened. Uh, the Chicago Defender, the New York Age, the Crisis, African-American publications all wrote freely but to their own audience about being given second-class status at an alleged um, event uh, honoring an emancipator. One called it Jim Crowism of the, grace, of the greatest sort perpetuated by the hypocrites of the nation on a day devoted to Abraham Lincoln. Um, but that was not the only indignity awaiting. Here's the crowd as it gathers. And it was about 100,000 people in the end. The Harding administration, Warren Harding was now the president, asked one African-American to speak to, quote, represent his race, unquote. And they chose a conservative leader, um, Robert Rossamoton, who was the principal of the Tuskegee Institute, Booker T. Washington's successor. And... Moton wrote a pretty tough speech, including this sentence. So long as any group within our nation is denied the full protection of the law, then Lincoln's unfinished work is still unfinished. The memorial itself would be a hollow mockery, a symbol of hypocrisy, unless we together can make real in our national life in every state and in every section the things for which he died. The only problem was, unlike the white speakers that day, Moton had to submit his speech in advance to the Harding press office. And they told him they had no intention of allowing him to make that statement. He could either eliminate these disagreeable passages, or heaven forbid he talked about black rights, or he could retire from the proceeding and they would not have an African-American speaker. So... Moton, facing the prospect of losing the biggest white audience he had ever been able to speak before, consented to the censorship. His speech was not fully printed for another 60 years and was not performed for 75 years, 85 years at the memorial itself. Rising to present the statue to the nation, William Howard Taft, you see on the right, a little slimmer than in his presidential days. Uh, the chairman of the commission presented the sculpture to Warren Harding, and both of them talked only about sectional reconciliation and not a bit about racial conciliation. How it would soften Lincoln's anguish, said Harding, to know that the South has come to realize that a vain assassin robbed it of its most sincere and potent friend, an old trope of Jim Crow version of Reconstruction. To the Chicago Defender, it was an abject attempt to justify in palavering words the, of apology the greatest act of the greatest American, the freeing of the poor, helpless bondman. And it was perfectly pleasing to this triumvirate, Warren Harding on the left, Robert Lincoln in the middle, 
and Speaker of the House, then ex-Speaker of the House, Uncle Joe Cannon, who had reluctantly agreed to the site and has was still around for the dedication. And there it was, a symbol, I guess, of the reunification of the states facing Virginia, if at least it wasn't in Virginia, with the words of the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural carved inside, but not the words of what Lincoln said was his greatest act, the emancipation. Just some further technical ingenuity by French, uh, who gets enormous credit for conceiving the sculpture and then Unfortunately, he did not live to see its transfiguration, but he did know that at night it was not visible. Uh, primitive electric lighting, he very cleverly got GE to do a free study, and they rehearsed and reconfigured the lighting so that it glowed in the dark as it did in the day. But it was still the white man's marble white tribute to Abraham Lincoln. And that did not change for another 17 years not until Easter Sunday, 1939. A few weeks before, Marian Anderson had been barred from the Daughters of the American Revolution where she had contracted to give a concert. Eleanor Roosevelt intervened and urged the Interior Department to stage her concert at the Lincoln Memorial. And there on on a drizzly Easter Sunday, 25,000 people gathered to hear her sing, um, my country, tis of thee, and nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and just a few other selections. Millions more listened on radio, and almost immediately, the Lincoln Memorial was transformed into a backdrop for national aspiration. That same year, and we shouldn't take the power of film lightly, James Stewart, a.k.a. Mr. Smith, who goes to Washington, Uh, came to the memorial to gather inspiration for his new Senate term and there um, listened as a child, read the words of the Gettysburg Address, and a man of color listened as well, tears streaming down his cheek. Um, That's a little bit of Frank Capricorn, I guess. And John Ford pitched in by ending uh, his young Mr. Lincoln movie with... um, Henry Fonda's silhouette fading out as the Lincoln Memorial fades into the strains of uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Here's another extraordinary event. 1946, the NAACP's meeting, June 29th, 47, excuse me, the speaker is Harry Truman. And again, the catalyst Third, second from the right in the front row, her head turned, is Eleanor Roosevelt, who had urged Harry Truman to make this pilgrimage and to speak. He had just read uh, the story of the brutal beating and blinding of World War II veteran Isaac Woodard, the subject of a new book, as some of you may have seen recently. It inspired this one time, at, at the least, casual racist from Missouri, his letters are filled with expressions of racism, to rethink himself and rethink American policy, ultimately to desegregate the military, but to speak here about freedom and equality for all, again animated by this memorial, which by then had achieved ubiquity in many other ways, in currency, in coin, until 16 years after Truman, the nation's civil rights leaders gathered 
in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial um, for the March on Washington. And among those present, third from the left is a very young future congressman named John Lewis. And, of course, from the right in the front row are Roy Wilkins, Dr. King, and A. Philip Randolph, who has a statue of his own now in Washington. And on that moment, August 28, 1963, with the I Have a Dream speech, the Lincoln Memorial took on yet another meaning. It had not been a destination of reflection and aspiration until this moment, really. Maybe beginning with Marian Anderson, but obviously a whole new level of meaning in 1963, in which Dr. King identified the civil rights struggle with the Emancipation Proclamation moment of a century earlier. Since then, it's inspired visits both moving, surprising, bizarre. Fidel Castro in 1961 his thoughts impossible to penetrate. He was a huge Lincoln fan, by the way. There are an, a surprising number of Lincoln statues in Havana, um, which some of which he installed. In 1971, uh, Richard Nixon made a famous uh, pilgrimage to meet demonstrators who had um, occupied the memorial to chant anti-war slogans and had a dialogue with them which is unrecorded but which must have been interesting. There he is with the protesters who are looking and saying, I don't know, how high are we that Nixon seems to be here? I don't know. It took a while to sink in, right? More recently, it's the backdrop for the pre-inaugural ceremonies. It is the destination of almost a requirement now for presidents before they... they uh, go the next day to be sworn in. And we'll start with President Clinton, who visited the memorial many times. We'll just, I know you know who these folks are. Um, the Lincoln Memorial also has come to suggest um, expressions of national concern, grief. This is her blocks famous 1963 cartoon um, about the nation mourning for John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Cartoons have been have proliferated of the Lincoln Memorial. It's our go-to symbol of the national mood. There are at least 20 fist bump cartoons uh, on the occasion of the election of Barack Obama. And no, it wasn't hard to find a cartoon representation of the Lincoln Memorial following the last presidential election. And the cartoonist was nice enough to give this to me, so I show you my own cartoon of the Lincoln Memorial after the last election. <laughs> and here's Daniel Chester French um, in his final visit to the Lincoln Memorial, an old man of about 80, who just stood there and said, isn't it beautiful? Which is what Robert Lincoln continued to say all the days of his life, which lasted um, you know, into the jazz age. And you know, the work goes on. Um, the, we are living in a golden age of Lincoln sculpture. While we are appropriately focused on lost cause memorials, when they were built, what they represent, who they were supposed to frighten, and who they were supposed to... Um, 
assure, there is also a renaissance in Lincoln sculpture. Sculptures are popping up everywhere. And, oh, there's Dan again. But here is one that I wanted to show you. It's by my friend Frank Porku, who I think is here tonight. There he is, right there. Um, Frank uh, produced this a few years ago. It was unveiled, the bronze was unveiled right here at the New York Historical Society with a brief and wonderful exhibition. And I'm happy to say that it has now been accepted to adorn the town square of Lincoln, Argentina, the first city outside the United States named for Abraham Lincoln. So it will soon be shipped and soon be shown. So the Lincoln legacy is perpetuated in art as surely as it is in history and writing and analysis and debate. Um, I'm grateful for the memorials that still stand and thrive. And I want to end with one wonderful recollection that I'm very fond of. Um, four years after it was dedicated and 13 years before Marian Anderson repurposed the Lincoln Memorial, uh, a Washington busboy, a uh, former historian's assistant who had to work part-time as a, a restaurant busboy, who was soon to enroll alongside an aspiring attorney named Thurgood Marshall in the uh, all-black college, Lincoln University, um, later to emerge as a social activist and a poet, visited the Lincoln Memorial, as I'm sure all of you had and have. His name was Langston Hughes. And this is what he wrote in 1926. True then, true now, and hopefully, as he put it, true for all time. Langston Hughes wrote, let's go see old Abe sitting in the marble and the moonlight, sitting lonely in the marble and the moonlight, quiet for 10,000 centuries, old Abe, quiet for a million, million years, quiet and yet a voice forever against the timeless walls of time itself, old Abe. Thank you. Thank you. So I've handed some questions. We have about 10 minutes. Not to worry, I will be removed from the stage on the dot of 7.30. Um, so did Lincoln think about or write about his legacy during his presidency? That's a very good question, and he did. Uh, as early as December 1862, two weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation in its final uh, version was signed and delivered to the American people. He said, we cannot escape history. We will be remembered in spite of ourselves. Um, and I think he understood from the minute he affixed his name to that document that he would be enshrined in American memory for you know removing the great hypocrisy that had stained the founding. And there's a great story about that moment. Um, you know, he delayed the signing for hours, um, as abolitionists and people of color gathered in churches around the North from midnight on, waiting for the decree to be communicated on the telegraph. And the reason is, and this is often not stated, because Lincoln found a typo. Well, you know, it wasn't a typo, but it was a miswriting on the formal document, and he wouldn't sign it unless it was perfect. 
He sent it back, went to a New Year's reception, two hours shaking hands with diplomats and military leaders, and then another two hours shaking hands with the general public who could just come in. And then he finally goes upstairs at three in the afternoon while people in the churches are probably on the 20th round of the hymn book at that point, not sure what had happened. And Lincoln picked up a pen and then put it down again. And the two or three witnesses in the room thought, maybe he just isn't going to do it. Maybe it's too much. It was controversial. He picked up his pen again and put it down. No one understood what was happening. And finally, Lincoln looked up and said, I've been shaking hands for four hours. I have almost no feeling left in my hand. If I sign it now, my signature will appear tremulous. And in a hundred years, people will look at it and and think he hesitated. If my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act. It's the great act of the 19th century. And then he just massaged his hand until he had the feeling back and wrote Abraham Lincoln in a fine hand and then said, that will do. The irony is that the, it's all faded. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that parchment in a legible way, but uh, he certainly thought from that moment that his legacy would be different than when he began his presidency. What were the reactions to the aesthetics of the memorial? Was it well-received in terms of its appearance? Absolutely. It was, uh, rave, it was reviewed in rave terms by um, everyone, particularly the New York Herald Tribune, which had a very famous art critic named Royal Cortisos. And maybe it helped that Mr. Cortisos had been asked to write the epigraph in back of the Lincoln Memorial in this temple as in the hearts of his countrymen. The memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. But it was absolutely, um, it did not receive any, any criticism that I've ever found. The epigraph did because it talked about the union and not about slavery and emancipation. Uh, the last few years have seen a, major, a more mainstream reckoning with Civil War memorials, that's for sure. Given the context of its creation and opening, do you think the Lincoln Memorial should be altered in any way? Um, it has been um, in one major way. Uh, aside from the stenciled words of the, which I'm happy to say, under the Clinton-Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, we re-stenciled thanks to you taxpayers. Um, you would not believe how much it costs. I'm not going to tell you, but it was, um, it was expensive. But the Lincoln Memorial was altered in, after the assassination of Dr. King in 1968. The, um, a tablet was carved on the top step indicating that um, Dr. Dr. King had given his I Have a Dream speech on that spot. And it is uh, you know a minor change. And of course now Mr. Rubenstein is certainly bringing an alteration to the Undercroft. There'll be a bookstore, there'll be restrooms, uh, which visitors yearn for, um, and people will get to see the graffiti that early 20th century construction workers drew, um, those that we can show in the Undercroft. Um, Lincoln has occupied a significant part of the American imagination for two centuries. Will he still 200 years from now? Um, I don't know. As lo- I think, you know, public statuary that we acknowledge should survive has a powerful impact. I mean, there are four-century-old statues uh, uh, in Europe. We mourned when the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed 
by the Taliban because a great work of art had been destroyed because of a you know uh, belligerent attitude about a different religion. Um, I hope it endures, and I'm heartened and disheartened at the same time when I see thousands of people a day experiencing the sculpture by taking selfies of themselves with it. But, you know, I say whatever, whatever it takes. Did the former Confederate states respond to commemorate Lincoln's death? Well, by the early 20th century, they were sucked into this idea that Lincoln was their best friend. He was not their best friend. He would have, I'm convinced, would have imposed a harsh, well, at least a fair reconstruction that would have encouraged, as he said in his last speech, the speech that John Wilkes Booth heard him deliver and vowed would be the last speech he'd ever make, he vowed to begin the process of black voting rights. Although he said at the time, and here's a great example of looking at history through the wrong end of a telescope, as my friend Jim McPherson liked to say. He said, let's, give, let's consider giving the vote to the colored race, that is, those who are very intelligent and those who have fought in the army. Now, anyone looking at that, that statement through the lens of the 21st century would say means testing, exclusion, but he, he was the first American president to introduce the idea of black male suffrage. And for that, again, John Wilkes Booth said that means Negro equality. That's the last speech he'll ever make. If Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, what do you think his, do you think his memorial would have been different? You know, memorials... Um, unanswerable, I guess. Memorials in the first 25 years of Lincoln's, uh, after Lincoln's death were almost all about the Emancipation Proclamation, were all about Lincoln as a liberator. Only when um, we congealed the memory and allowed lost cause memory to take fuller hold was Lincoln portrayed by St. Gaudens and others as an orator. It's a more benign image. But I think in that atmosphere, and we all know what the 19-teens and 20s were like in Washington, D.C., just think about that dedication ceremony. Considering that Democrats, Dixiecrats, and Republicans had to unite to fund this thing, I think French had the last laugh because we can attach our imaginings about Lincoln's determination to that mysterious figure, as have Marian Anderson and so many others. Um, I'm not going to read this first part because it'll sound self-serving. Um, do you still find yourself being surprised by something you have, something new you have learned about him? Yeah, all the time. Um, and the web has made it so much easier to easier to suss out information if you use it uh, properly. So yeah, I can't tell you the last surprising thing, but I guess. My book about Lincoln and the press yielded surprises, at least for me, I hope for you, about his um, astonishing stranglehold on censorship and the press during the Civil War. Did Mary Lincoln play any role in terms of tributes, memorials, or paintings, or was she not consulted? That's a really good question. I always get one Mary question. Um, yeah, they wanted to build a memorial to Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, right away, and they told Mary Lincoln who was in such protracted mourning that they thought she would be rather a pushover. They told her they were going to build it at the railroad station in Springfield, from which Lincoln had departed 
uh, to go to Washington in 1861. And it was going to be really good because they would build some hotels there. And people could get off the train, buy a postcard, buy lunch, and get back on the train. And we keep sweeping in the tourists. And she said, that's what you think. Um, um, she said, my husband and I helped found uh, a, a rural cemetery uh, at Oak Ridge, just outside of town. It's now part of town. We really believed in this idea of a bucolic cemetery like Mount Auburn in Boston, like uh, Greenwood in Brooklyn, and that's where he's going. And they said, don't be silly. He can't possibly go to such a remote area with the statue that we have planned. And she said, if he doesn't go there, I'm taking him to Chicago. And she did influence that serenity that still exists in um, in Oak Ridge Cemetery. Um, is it fair to think of Lincoln as a refounding father um, since he presided over the Union's dissolution and eventual reunification? I'm going to use that line, um, but now it's on, it's on C-SPAN that I've, I have to borrow it. That is a really terrific um, rebranding of the Lincoln legacy, and it's absolutely true. Uh, Lincoln was always aware of the founding fathers and their accomplishments. In fact, as a young man, he was concerned that no man of his generation could ever equal their accomplishments, that all the rivers and all the mountains in the country had already been named and there would be no opportunity to shine. Um, so um, he, was, he was thought of as another founder uh, at, at the instant of his assassination. And I think he would have loved the idea of his being a refounding father. And if you hear it repeatedly for the rest of whatever days I have to talk about Abraham Lincoln, it started right here at the New York Historical Society. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History. Or visit us at nyhistory.org.